portentous title, Norwich City of Refuge, which was my original title when I sort of thought I would do this about eight months ago now, and then I sort of modified it as I realised what I was going to narrow down on. I was originally not sure whether I was going to sort of look at various different um, influxes of, of different people um, or different types of migrants. <laughs> um, but um, it's become focused on the strangers, um, who many, many of you will be familiar with, the, the Dutch immigrants who came from the lowlands in the late 16th century. Um, the, it seems incredibly apposite that I'm talking about the subject. I mean, you know, unfortunately, the story of re refugees is something that is a perennial one. But as I understand it, at the, very, at the moment, we've got 600-odd people on a tanker bobbing in the Mediterranean trying to find somewhere to dock. We've got um, a government minister, I understand, in the last couple of hours has resigned because of the difficulties engendered by trying to extricate ourselves from Europe. So, um, yeah, I want you to consider that as a backdrop because we are, of course, looking at the late 16th century, which is a time um, uh, characterised by these fractious times, incredible divisions as a result of the, the Reformation and Counter-Reformation, um, long-cherished hopes of unity amongst its people from both the Catholic side and the Protestant side, uh, dashed um, huge movements of refugees, obviously one particular um, kind we're going to be looking at today, uh, concerns about a perceived threat of Islam, concerns about uh, what to do about the urban poor and vagrants, um, on top of all that, a communications revolution in which knowledge and new ideas and learning could be disseminated um, at hitherto unknown speeds um, and, and effectiveness. So all in all, I think you'll agree that sounds rather familiar. Um, so that's kind of the backdrop. I'm not going to be going to these things you'll notice as we go through. These will sort of hover around and I want you to consider those as the kind of backdrop to, the, to, to what we're looking at today. But the key object of the session. It's always, it's always a bit tricky to decide quite how to pitch these talks because I'm aware that there are many people in Norwich who know quite a lot about the strangers. There are some who may see a poster and think that sounds interesting. I've always wanted to know more. So the point of today is that I'm going to use um, slides of, of items from our collections. The Heritage Centre collections are printed material for those who are unaware, published material, so books, maps, images, prints, photographs, the record office is um, original records, original archives, so 10 to 12 million original records held down there. So I'm going to be going through a few items, um, and I'm going to be using them as kind of jumping off points, kind of discuss um, around the issue, because I do want to cover those immediate questions that some of you who, who are sort of fairly unfamiliar with this subject might want to know. So, um, you know, who they were, um, why, when, and how the strangers came into Norwich um, from the 1560s, 1570s onwards, um, what their experiences were, what their contributions were. So these things hopefully will be teased out. At the same time, I've got some wonderful, wonderful items. I'm glad I didn't uh, decide to have them out the back as I'd envisaged, because we, we clearly haven't got any room. But I've got some wonderful items, some of the things that are, that are included in the slides, some other things, um, my colleague, hopefully, while I'm talking, is going to put them out on one of the tables in the search room so that after the talk, you can go through and have a look at some of the items a bit more closely. But basically what I've got out there, some of the things I've got here, plus a wonderful couple of books, the Theatrum Orbis Terrarum, which is uh, seen as Europe's first atlas, 
Um, so it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Printed in Antwerp in 1875. So clearly of, of, of relevance and, and you know a wonderfully, wonderfully evocative item. And also the Civitatis Orbis Terrarum as well, which is a kind of companion piece which included lots of cities um, in Europe and around the world. It's this fantastic, fantastic thing. And please, please do at two or there thereabouts when I finish, go through and have a look. Okay, so we're going to be looking at a, using a kind of a zooming in and zooming out approach. Um, today, if, if you will. So the first um, slide um, we're going to be looking at, and I'm, again, I apologise for how small it is. However, I have got some laminated copies, and I'll put those out later on on the table so you can sort of look a bit closely, more closely at that. Um, anyone know what that is at a glance? No? Not sure. Okay. Those of you who may have sort of gone further into family history and local history might... Um, no, it's a probate inventory. Okay, so um, probate inventories from 1530 to 1782 was required um, that every executor or will or administrator of a grant of, of probate had to provide um, copies of this of, a, of this document, the the probate inventory. Um, you can tell at a glance that it is a list, in as much as it's got this word item. The same word going all, all along. Those of you who aren't paleographers, i.e. who don't, haven't studied early modern handwriting, um, we're, should be able, next time you see something like this, to at least pin it down, because it's quite distinctive having this item, item, item. Simply a list. Okay. Um, and Norfolk wills and probate material we have in the original at the record office, of course. This is an example of one of the duplicate copies on microfilm, which I've printed out from the search room out there. So these are all on microfilm. They can be searched via the Norfolk Record Office catalogue, and you can search them and have a look. Um, and if you're interested, I'd, I'd urge you to do so. Um, probate inventory is a wonderful, wonderful source, as are all wills and probate records. Um, long seen as a very rich source for historians. Their very nature, as a kind of a summing up of people's lives, seems to offer um, wonderful potential for re revealing personal insights um, that are otherwise hidden. Um, they're lists of personal goods, very often, particularly in the earlier of that, the period that I mentioned, 1530, uh, you know, 1782, particularly in the earlier period of that, those intervening years, um, very often um, carried out room to room. So you can get, build up a picture of what people's lives were like. And clearly, looking at the kind of personal goods that were left, you know, you can see, get an insight into trades, people's personal lives, family, family lives, Incredibly rich um, treasure trove for the for the social as well as the family historian. Um, personal property would include potentially livestock, implements used uh, by the deceased in his trade or occupation. Um, I've said they're often pre prepared room by room, um, but this particular um, probate inventory is, of course, of interest to us today because it's that. And at this point, I'm going to apologise for the whole rest of the terrible Dutch pronunciations that I'm going to do. If any of you are of Dutch extraction or have studied uh, the Dutch language or anything like that, I apologise at the outset. Um, and I'm just going to sort of read it in English and hope no one um, holds it against me. Okay, but this is the probate inventory of Vincentiana Hertes. And she died in 1590. And we know that she died in 1590, of course, because this is her probate inventory. She is listed as... 
on the Norfolk Record Office catalogue as Hertes Vincentiana, wife of Francis Van Beek, alien. Now, being listed as wife, I assumed um, that Francis would have still been around when um, Vincentiana departed uh, this world. Um, however, and that sort of threw up a whole sort of can of worms um, because, you know, I thought, oh, I'm going to have to go into details of sort of legal uh, you know, issues around women and property in this time. And I started, and then it's such a minefield, I thought, this is too big for this talk. Might be, it might be another talk, but the point is, um, it's possible that as we have a probate or we have a will for Francis Van Beek of 1587, it's possible that this is something to do with the fact that he died first, possibly he left these goods and others to his wife for the remainder of her life and she died three years later and we have an inventory and it's to do with that, it's to do with a marriage settlement perhaps, because looking into it, the um, marriage, um, Married Women's Property Act clearly only came in until 1882, so prior to that, you know, it's often assumed, oh, well all property would have gone automatically to the husband um, on a woman's death. Um, but apparently there, are lot, there were lots of um, overlapping jurisdictions as well as common law. There was ecclesiastical law. Um, there, were, there were lots of ways. There was this use, using of marriage settlements. There were lots of ways in which that could be negotiated and that women could actually have some elements of personal property. Particularly the sort of more, I would have thought, the more sort of um, well-off and the sort of middling to upper sort as um, Vincentiana must have been because it's quite, where have I put it? It's actually quite a long document. This is just one, um, one, the upper half of one page, but I've, I've got a complete printout here. It's actually six pages long. Um, and it includes on here, I'll just read out the first few lines of this one. Um, so this is the inventory of Enchantia Hertis. Item, a woman's gown of turkey grog grain. Anyone know what? Grograin. It's, it's pronounced grograin. It's grograin. Thank you. If you could help me with any of the other pronunciations <laughs> later on, that would be fantastic. Grograin. Um, what is grograin? It's sort of a, a, a ribbed, quite a like a twill type. A ribbed twill. Yeah. Yeah. That tallies with what I've found. Yeah. So it's oh, used for edging yeah. and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Right. Okay. And that's from Turkey. Obviously, not nothing to do with Norfolk turkeys or anything like that. Um, <laughs> so item: a woman's gown of Turkey grograin. Item one other cloth gown. And then again, item one other cloth gown. Item two pair of velvet sleeves. Item one remnant of grain. Item one gown of the old fashion. <laughs> item a cassock and a pair of hose. Item one silk apron. Item two remnants of bays, the one black, the other crimson. Bays here being spelt B-A-Y-E-S and to many of us now, of course, being more familiar as the green cloth spread on snooker tables, but at that time sold um, in its undyed state. Um, item one, Flemish cloak for a woman. Item two, rugs for a bed. Item old trash. Item lace and old remnants of velvet. Item two, pair of sheets with other small trifles. Uh, item a piece of coarse diaper for napkins. Tablecloth, item one, Dutch cloak. So I chose this, this particular page because it's clearly got all of these items of clothing, material, remnants is used often. And clearly, if we didn't know this already, the fact that this lady is, off, is, is very likely to do with the textile industry, 
clothes, textile manufacture, this kind of thing, which we know um, the Dutch were involved in, and I'll come to that in a moment or two. This is the kind of information that can be gleaned more generally from these wonderful, wonderful documents. Um, the, before I just sort of mention a little bit about why the strangers actually came to Norwich, which is sort of the, the whole point of this, um, I will just mention, as I've already said, it, it's, a long, it's quite a long will. Um, it includes also things such as a, um, a salt cellar, um, and, no, it's not salt cellar, what was it, where have I written it? Hang on a sec. Um, where are we? Oh yes, there we go. Includes a salt box, sorry, yeah, salt box, and a pair of writing tables. So salt, still at this time, still the preserve of the wealthy, Elizabethan England, and a two pair, uh, and a pair of writing tables. Um, suggest, you know, we don't know whether they were Frances's writing tables or whether they were her writing tables, but it suggests obviously that she was she was literate as well. Um, incidentally, the entire total of, of, of these items totted up um, was, uh, where are we, 92 pounds, 9 shillings and 8 pence, which I suspect was rather a lot of money in 1590. I found something um, a little bit dodgy looking on Google called the Purchasing Power Calculator because I wanted to get some sort of indication of just how much money that was and it told me, rather unhelpfully I feel, that it was somewhere between, um, I think it was, what was it, £20,000 and £22 million. <laughs> so, I think I'll just say, it was quite a bit. But that wasn't very helpful. Um, okay. Um, but yeah, it shows the links to the textile industry, gives us a wonderful insight into an individual's life. This person is separated from us, clearly, by hundreds of years. And a different culture came over... Um, from the, from the lowlands, and yes, I'm getting to the, to the point now. Hooray. Um, the, the strangers, as many of you will know already, were originally invited in, in 1565, 1666. Um, there was a public letter with the help of uh, the authorities in London under Elizabeth I. The, the city authorities invited 30 um, Dutch weavers um, and their families to come into Norwich to settle in the city. Um, the, um, the term family, of course, at that period would have re referred, would have been much more than the nuclear family that we would understand it today, would have included servants, um, apprentices, that kind of thing. So we can assume um, that um, uh, 30 people times 10, basically. So 300 people, it is felt. And at this point, and I should have done this earlier, I was wondering whether he was going to be here, but I should acknowledge the extraordinary assistance that's been provided to me um, by the work of the one and only Mr Frank Mears, um, who's got a book coming out in a couple of weeks, he told me a couple of weeks ago, on precisely this subject, um, and I said, you should be doing this talk, and he said, no, 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 not at all, it's a good opportunity, which, uh, so, yeah, my, my sincere gratitude to Frank, but his, his book is called The Welcome Stranger, Dutch Walloon and Huguenot incomes to Norwich, 1550 to 1750, and that's going to be published um, in the next couple, of, next week or two, I believe, the 21st of June. Um, and Frank has told me to pass on. He will also be doing three walks connected with that new book um, in September to do with um, heritage open days. Oh, we've gone on too far. Hang on a sec. Read this. There we are. 
So yeah, look out for those in the Heritage Open Day book when it appears um, in the next month or two. Okay, so yeah, um, 300 originally, 1565, 1566, um, a public letter had been issued by Elizabeth I in November 1565, five referred to the desirability of 30 Dutch weavers coming to the city. Seven months later, an invitation was issued, which included the names of 30 men. Um, it didn't turn out that they were all weavers, but certainly the primary reason for the initial invitation was to assist Norwich um, with its weaving um, and textile industry. Um, the, the impact, um, well, up to this point, so this is 1565-1566, Norwich had, had an incredible history up until this point of being a centre for textiles and weaving. Um, if you look at another wonderful book, Norwich since 1550, um, edited by Carol Rawcliffe and Richard Wilson. Um, there are chapters in there which cover this. Um, I think I believe it's in that book that it said that someone says that um, Norwich had actually reached its peak of uh, being a centre in the in the, in the 1400s. Um, so you know, many hundreds of years prior to this date, Norwich had a long history um, of being a centre for that trade. However, by this point, as as I've already said. Um, it was felt clearly that we needed some assistance, and this is because the industry had fallen on hard times. Um, it was seen as uh, overregulated, um, a recession that made um, had made things very difficult, um, and the quality had, had declined. It was it was felt that 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 was being produced in Norwich in the 1550s was simply unable to compete um, with what was being produced um, on the continent. Uh, Norwich, particularly. Norfolk, in general, had been, had been uh, very much involved in, in cloth and, and weaving, but Norwich particularly was a centre um, where goods were sent for finishing and for sale. Um, it's worsted, again, Dutch pronunciation, also the technicalities of, um, of weaving and textile, not my particular specialities, but um, worsteds, lighter, cheaper cloth woven from long combing wool, <coughs> This contrasted with traditional English cloths, which was made from short carding wool. Okay, and it was the worsted, the lighter, cheaper, uh, cheaper cloth that was what Norwich um, was, was was known for. As I sort of briefly mentioned earlier, the impact of the strangers has been contested. Um, Richard Wilson, in that book, um, notes this. Um, some historians have apparently said that the, the so-called new draperies. Um, which the, uh, the strangers have been credited with bringing to the city were already in production before they arrived. However, Stephen Wilson, in, in Norwich since 1550, suggests that the Dutch and Walloons, the Walloons being the French-speaking immigrants as opposed to the Dutch-speaking immigrants, so we'll, we'll sort of mention those terms more as we go on, but Dutch and Walloons, um, two different ways they contributed, apparently. The Dutch, who mainly produced bays, which was, of course, mentioned in Vincentiana's um, probate inventory, um, they are credited, um, according to Wilson, with, with, with generally influencing better finishing in the traditional goods that were produced in the city. Um, it's seen, according to him um, and, and others, no doubt, as being perhaps a lesser contribution than the Walloons made to the, to the industry in the city at that time, because the Walloons... Um, said to have introduced more innovatory um, measures. So, for example, and again, um, not quite sure of my territory here, but used, they used scoured, dyed yarns and introduced silk thread, which resulted 
in in a fancier cloth, basically more lustrous, <coughs> lighter. Um, and according um, according to Wilson, basically the foundation for the Norwich stuffs, which would would, would for you know 100, 200 years afterwards um, be be what Norwich was renowned for. At this point, I'm just going to read a quote from this wonderful book. If you haven't read it, please do. Um, I will discharge it. As you can see, I've been using it quite a lot. Um, but it's Mark Greengrass's Christendom Destroyed, Europe 1517 to 1648. It's in Penguin. It's fantastic. Do have a look at that. And there's a wonderful quote from it, which I'm just going to read here because I think it gives, gives us that sort of larger context as well for the, as to how you know, the cloth industry really was crucial for the importance in Europe generally. So this is, this is from Christendom Destroyed. Cloth remained the staple of Europe's long-distance trades, even after a century of expansion in the New World. Bedclothes, table coverings, hangings, towels and napkins were registers of social standing. The bridal trousseau embodied familial virtue in embroidered gowns, veils and underblouses. Almost everything that needed transporting, even bodies for burial, made use of cloth. Okay. Now, this is my favourite, and I'm really, really annoyed that we've got such a small, um, such a small slide. We have got the original out in the back, so you can have it out in the, the search room. So after I've finished speaking, do please go and have a look at this wonderful, wonderful item. Um, I'm very, very lucky. Um, I have a wonderful job, and I appreciate it. And I have the opportunity to go out into the store and root around and, and rummage and, and, and find things. Um, and this is, is something um, that I happened upon about 18 months ago, two years ago. And it's a chart by the fabulously named and terribly pronounced once again, Lucas Janzoon Waghena. Isn't that a name and a half? Um, he was a Dutch cartographer. Um, you can all see what that is, I presume, can you? No? If you, if you turn around that way, you'll see that it's Norfolk. It's the Norfolk coast, and it's produced, of course, from the Dutch point of view of coming in um, over, the, over the North Sea. Um, we've got, it's all in Dutch, we've got Winston here, Cromer, the towns and villages along the coast. Um, we've got two wonderful compass roses here, little details and ships. At the top, when you go out, have a look more closely, because there's a wonderful um, sort of cross-section or profile of the coast. So that's the kind of showing the, the land levels as it would be seen. So you can imagine yourself coming in on one of these little ships and seeing um, the levels of the land in that way. Absolutely fantastic thing. Um, it's dated, it's penciled in as 1584, at the bottom of our chart, and that is the date on which the uh, during which the volume from which this is taken was published. Okay, um, and that was Lucas Janzoon Waghena, whose dates are circa 1533, excuse me, to 1606. That's when he published his Spiegel de Zerverhut, which sound a bit too Germanic, really. Uh, Mariner's Mirror, that is Mariner's Mirror. And this was a landmark atlas of sea charts. Okay, so up until this point, apparently, um, up until this point, there had been sea charts or pilot guides, but they had relied exclusively on um, 
ancient text that had been passed down from sea captains. This was the first one, uh, apparently, which, which, which made use of these fantastic charts and illustrations. So in that sense, it was, it was revolutionary. Um, if you're interested, have a look on the University of Utrecht Library website, um, which has got a digitised version on there, which doesn't include this one. Now, this, 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 this work, uh, Mariner's Mirror, um, was, was, I understand, so important that it went through a number of editions after 1584. So I wonder whether this appeared in a later edition, but someone has simply dated it 1584. I'm not entirely sure, um, to be perfectly honest with you. But the point is that Spiegel de Zverhart, Mariner's Mirror, is considered to be the world's first nautical atlas, or pilot's guide. Um, it was a practical thing. Um, Wagner, um was actually a seagoing navigation officer. So this is, this is uh, based on his practical observations, his practical experience, um, and clearly his, his skill as an engraver, as a, as a cartographer. There's a number of interesting things about this. It's a fantastic thing in itself, but it's also, or rather the Mariner's Mirror from which it was taken, was dedicated to William I, Prince of Orange. Now that's interesting from our perspective, because William of Orange, um, not the William of Orange who became king here, but William I, or also known as William the Silent, apparently. And we've got a picture of him later. He, he, do, he does look rather doer, um, it has to be said. Um, William I, Prince of Orange, is the chap who rose against the Spanish, um, provoking them, or rather other things to do with the revolt, provoked the Spanish to come into, um, into the <coughs> lowlands and uh, hammer the Protestants and others, um, and caused, of course, the, many of the Dutch Protestants to come over um, and flee that persecution. So this, this chart, I think, you know, it emanates, um, incidentally as well, Enkhuizen, E-N-K-H-U-I-Z-E-N, which was Waghain's birthplace, um, was the first West Frisian city to wrest control from the Spanish in, 17, in, in 1572, rather. So clearly, um, Waghain had, you know, had a lot of reason to dedicate um, his masterwork um, to, to William of Orange. So this chart, um, I often think, and I did, oh hang on, again, sorry, apologies, go, go, go back. Um, when I was gathering some of the items for you to look at later, I don't, this, is, this is rather fanciful perhaps, but I do feel that the old books and things do sort of almost give off an actual sort of charge, you know, they set the air sort of thrumming, and I think this one this item does. It's, it's clearly a manifestation, um, it embodies a number of issues um, relating to the strangers in their world. It's a manifestation of advances regarding navigation and printing, relevant to that communications revolution that, that I mentioned earlier, and which I can't claim credit for that, that term, that does come from uh, Mark Greengrass. Um, it's a testament also to the ambitions um, and capabilities of seagoing nations at this time. Clearly, this is, you know, this is Francis Drake time, this is, um, you know, uh, Portuguese, German, English, Spanish, all the Dutch, um, of course, as well, all competing on the, on the seas around our island and beyond. Um, it manifests that. Um, this particular chart, of course, as well, in its particularity for me, also <coughs> evokes um, the journeys and experiences of the particular people we're looking at, the strangers, in that wonderful profile. You know, you could really imagine yourself coming in over the seas, and at this point, I'm just gonna read, if you haven't come across this little book, 
I, I know I mentioned earlier Frank Mears has got a, a new one coming out, Concentrating on the Strangers. This one is also titled Strangers. It's, it's a smaller study and doesn't concentrate exclusively on the, on the Dutch and the Walloons, on the Strangers. Um, it, it includes other, um, other people, so French refugees, immigrants from black and ethnic minorities, the Jewish community, travel community. But there's a wonderful, wonderful short chapter um, on this subject. And I, I you know, really would advise you to, to take a look. But I'm just going to read here. This is an excerpt from a letter from um, the mother of the family of Janus Gruter, who was born at Antwerp in 1560. His family fled to Norwich when he was a small boy. And his mother <coughs> later wrote this letter to a friend describing the flight. And I'm just going to read this, this excerpt out. So they arrived first at London. Then we journeyed 90 miles with four children for two months by land on a wagon and came to a town called Norwich where there were about 1,200 Flemings and among them all not one person that I had ever seen before. We did not know what to do to earn our living there. The trade was the spinning of wool and preparing of bays, in which we had no skill. So we had to join together with other people and bought wool and supplied the poor people with wool and took bays in exchange and sent them to London to sell them there. There we chanced upon a merchant who, when the day for payment came and we thought to have our money, was bankrupt and £450, Flemish, Flemish pounds, was lost. That was our first welcome. The second was that the same man who was in partnership with us left England secretly secretly to cross to Flushing with £300 sterling and on arrival at Flushing he jumped into the water for fear of the Spaniards who came alongside and sank with all the money and never came up again. And so we lost that too. I leave you to imagine how we felt then. But the Lord be praised for the grace that he gave my dear husband. I never saw him even sigh about it. He only said, the Lord gave it and he has taken it away again. Blessed be his name. So, you know, I think with regard to what I said at the outset of this talk, clearly this is something that's, that's, that's an eternal problem. And the experiences that refugees have, um, well, I don't really need to go on, do I? It speaks for itself, that letter. So, in terms of the question why they came, Initially, they were invited in. 1565, public letter issued, 30, 30 Dutch um, weavers, not exclusively weavers, but in the main, people involved in the textile trade, and their families, so 300 people. Um, I'm now, for those of you who have done Geography A-level, um, I'm going to look at the push factor as opposed to the, um, as opposed to the pull factor for, for this immigration. So... Again, a bit like um, legal issues surrounding um, women in early and property in early modern England, the, the, the persecution and the conflict within the Spanish Netherlands. Um, that's all right. That's all right. We'll edit it that out. That's fine. <laughs> Excellent. Right. That's all right. Not at all. Um, so. So yeah, the, 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 the persecution and the, and the conflict on the continent. I'm not going to go into too, um, too much detail. Um, well, I will go into, into some detail because I think the context is important. But basically, you know, you have to be aware of the, the Reformation. That it casts a massive shadow, obviously, of the whole century. We know 
was it last year um, the the anniversary of the uh, Luther's 95 Theses 1517 um, Henry VIII's break with Rome dissolution of the monasteries 1530s um, the practical application uh, in Geneva of Calvin's theology the, the austere um, theology he, he, he uh, uh, practiced uh, based around the idea of predestination, 1541. Religious persecution in England of Catholics under Edward VI, 1547 to 53. And of Protestants then under Mary I, 1553 to 1558. Um, then the Council of Trent, uh, the, the Catholic Counter-Reformation, 1545 to 1563. Clearly, um, even just, just that short list gives some idea of the, of the tumults and the you know, absolute uh, the, the, the havoc that was wreaked ideologically these, these lines that were, that were rent asunder by the Reformation. Um, and the Dutch, um, you know, were in the thick of it. And I'm going to speak briefly about the Dutch, but first, I'm just going to mention, and I've got four prints outside, variations on this theme, including this one out there. Um, anyone know who that might be at all? Cicely Orms. Anyone know about Cicely Orms? Okay, so Cicely Orms was burned... Um, in 1557, down at Lollard's Pit, um, where the Lollard's um, pub is near Bishop Bridge, um, and under the Mary, Mary the First, basically um, um, the, the the precise details can be can be found. But in, in essence, she she failed to recant um, her Protestant views, which she was heard to voice. And I just wanted to include that because I think you know it's astonishing to think that 1557. So what is this? This is eight years before we were inviting people over to escape being burnt for their Protestant, or, or persecuted for their Protestant beliefs, we were doing this in our city. And so, so, so there we have, I thought it was you know, worth having that there as an illustration of just how volatile, just how brutal. Um, interestingly, um, the, the mayor, well, I, presumably it's the same person, but Thomas Southerton, who I believe was the mayor of Norwich at the time, who invited was instrumental in bringing the strangers over. He is mentioned on a source that I researched as being um, influential in the city and one of the people in the role of sheriff who supervised Cicely Orms's custody. So, you know, it, it never hurts, I think, to remind ourselves um, just how quickly things can turn um, politically and, and all that kind of thing. But yeah, there we go, Cicely Orms... Um, being burnt, and there are, there are that one and three more prints are going to be on display um, out there in a moment or two. But the Dutch, um, to come back to the main the main point, the Dutch were in the thick of it. Um, we've got a, a succession of rather dour um, Tudor era portraits now, um, I'm afraid. But uh, this is Charles V, um, King of Spain um, since 1516, and Holy Roman Emperor since 1519. Now, again, Mark Greenbrass is wonderful on this, um, but he was, uh, one, of his, one of his things was the Edict of Blood in 1550, which, as, as the, the, the name suggests, um, wasn't good news for, for those he considered heretics, the Edict of Blood. Um, he, he persecuted Protestants um, fairly, um, fairly heartily, um, but basically his whole reign of 40-odd years, he'd attempted to unify um, the Catholic dominions, the Spanish dominions, under the umbrella of, of a united Catholic 
um, entity, and he'd failed in his task. By, by 1555, he decided to abdicate, which was an extraordinary um, thing for him to have decided at the time. Um, and at this point, we come back to, to William of Orange, who I mentioned earlier, and of course he was the dedicatee of that wonderful, wonderful map, or rather the, the, the volume which it came from, Mariner's Mirror. Um, apparently, and it describes it in the Greengrass book, um, when he had this, uh, his official abdication ceremony, which was in a palace in Brussels, um, he gathered all the influential, important people around him, um, and um, he leant on his young favourite at the time for support, who was William the um, First of Orange in 1555. So the person who was going to go on to lead the revolt against uh, Philip II of Spain, who Charles V lent, um, passed on the Spanish dominions to, was was lending them a hand in the palace as he um, as he abdicated the uh, the, the emperorship of the. Of the of the Holy Roman Empire. So I just think that's absolutely wonderful. Um, but basically, 1566, tensions which had, had, had been under um, Charles V's reign continued under Philip II. Um, this culminated in 1566 with, with what was described as the Year of Wonder. Basically, there was a nobles' revolt. They wanted more say in what was going on in the Spanish Netherlands at that time. Um, but unfortunately, their, their cause wasn't helped when um, a mob on the 10th of August, 1566, in Flanders, was roused to smash statues and other altarpieces, and, and basically what became known, um, remembered in Dutch as the Beeldenstorm, or the iconoclastic fury. This occurred on the 10th of August, 1566. Um, Richard Clough, an Englishman in Antwerp, on the 20, 20th to the 21st of August, wrote that it was like hell where were above 10,000 torches burning and such a noise as if heaven and earth had got together. So in addition to statuary, church and cloister interiors were ransacked, depictions of saints and biblical figures in paintings and altarpieces were defaced by angry crowds. So Protestants roused to this destructive fury. Clearly Philip II of Spain was not going to have um, much truck with this and he sent in um, there he is, Philip the Spain, Philip II of Spain. Looks like someone, I can't think who. Who does he look like? Doesn't matter. Um, sent in the Duke of Alba. So this is the chap who's gone down in history as being the real sort of iron fist who came down um, on the Dutch Protestants to, to crush that revolt. Um, he instigated what was officially known, um, or became known um, as the, uh, as, well, it was officially known as a special tribunal or the Council of Troubles to try and um, you know, bring in measures to quell the revolt, became known subsequently as the Council of Blood, which again um, gives you some idea of what went on. Um, the Council of Troubles, the documents, the records show that over 12,000 people were tried, which is said to be an underestimate since many who were investigated locally would not have made it into files, of which over 1,000 people were executed for being implicated in the rebellion, and 9,000 had their property um, confiscated. And that's William of Orange there, um, as, as we remember, the dedicatee of that, um, of that chart. He, um, from 1566, 1577, uh, sorry, 1566, 1567, led the Dutch Revolt, which ultimately um, resulted in the establishment of the Dutch Republic. Um, depending on whether you see the, the, sign the signing of the Union of Utrecht in 1579, 
or the act of abjuration in 1581 um, will we'll, we'll, uh, decide which of those dates you consider the founding of the, of, the, of the Dutch Republic to be. But basically, the Dutch Republic was founded at around that point. So that's the backdrop. That's the backdrop to... They were invited in to help with our textile industry. They were forced out because of the, the troubles at home and the persecution at home. So we've zoomed out geographically, um, and now we're going to zoom back in again. So many of you might, have, might be familiar with this image. This is a Norwich map from 1558, and it comes from William Cunningham's wonderful book, The Cosmographical Glass, which we have a copy of out for you to look at in a moment or two. And um, incidentally, this, this of course, just like the Waghainer chart, it's, uh, manifests those advances in learning and technology as well as that you know, printing revolution which, we, which we've mentioned already. But this map is, is recognised as being the earliest surviving printed map of an English town and is presumably coming from a volume um, which posits itself um, as a treatise on surveying, published in 1559, the cosmographical glass, is presumably the result of a measured survey. Um, it's been suggested that the author, William Cunningham, is represented in this tiny little chap here, on the right, poking up like that. You can just sort of see half of his face. If you have a look when, when you go out, it's sort of, we're looking, I believe, from west to east. Um, it's very clear. Um, the castle, um, Castles up there, cathedrals here, um, five, the five bridges, uh, Bishopgate, Whitefriars, Firebridge, St George's and Coslaney uh, are on the map, uh, and the cathedral, as I've mentioned, in St Peter Mancroft. There are one or two um, strange um, occurrences on the map, one or two accuracy issues, um, you might say, churches such as um, St Bartholomew, which is known to have been in Burr Street at this time, do not appear. Um, and there are other strange things where streets seem to not quite join up as you would expect them um, to do so. However, despite this, and I would urge you, if you're interested, to read, um, where are we, the first chapter of that, Christopher Barringer's The Changing, or Barringer, The Changing Face of Norwich, which goes into detail about the map. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing, um, and it remained the standard view of the city for 100 years or more, um, re reproduced by many others, despite those issues um, that I mentioned, um, with minimal, minimal changes. Um, so this is Norwich, just prior, about the time Sicily is getting, is getting burnt, um, just prior to the strangers being invited in. And so I'm aware that time is moving on a bit of a clip, so I'm going to sort of move on a little bit more swiftly. but. Um, I want to just focus a little bit on, on Norwich at this time and the impact that the strangers had. So the unrest in the low countries that we've, already, we've just looked at ensured that many more immigrants followed the initial 30 and their families who came in 1566, uh, 1565, 1566. <coughs> Among them, of course, presumably Vincentiana Hertes coming, coming after that initial period. Um, their numbers were recorded by the city authorities on several occasions. Uh, the immigrants were organised by a committee known as the Governors of the Drapery and by the leaders of their church. Additionally, they appointed um, eight Dutch speakers and four Walloons from among their number who were described as politic men to represent their interests in dealing with the English. 
A return from the city archives from 1568 records there being 1,132 Dutch speakers and 339 French speakers, while in 1571 the total number of strangers was recorded as being 4,013. Um, at this point I will mention, if you haven't had a good explore um, of the Norfolk Record <coughs> Office website, I would urge you to do so. There are a number of these wonderful research guides on them. This one, um, Norfolk Record Office Information Leaflet 13, Researching Ancestors from Abroad, mentions those records which are relevant to the strangers in Norwich. Um, and those city returns, many of them are in um, William Moens's um, book, The Walloons and Their Church at Norwich, a copy of which we have in our search room, and there are a handful more copies in the store. And the ones in the store, the, the ones in the search room is a thin book which includes his, his basic text. There are a couple of copies in the store which have huge appendices which include um, some of the actual sort of transcribed records um, that are relevant. Um, so that includes um, uh, returns of members of the Dutch church, returns of strangers in Norwich 1622, names of aliens in lay subsidy roles at the National Archives, and lots of other things as well. Um, so census is clearly a huge number of, of, of immigrants from the lowlands in the city. Um, however, censuses of, of the English were not made, so it's impossible to know precisely what proportion of, of the population were strangers. However, it has been estimated that through the 1570s and 1580s, one-third, one-third of the population were French and Dutch-speaking immigrants. Now, clearly, um, Norwich was rather smaller than we know it to be now. Um, it was the second city, as we are all so proud of saying, quite rightly, up until the, um, the, French, uh, the Industrial Revolution got going and was certainly the most important um, centre outside of London. However, it's been estimated um, that it would have been about 18,000, the population of around 1580. So 18,000 to compare with the 2011 census, which records the city of Norwich uh, population as being 132,512. So it gives you a little bit of an idea that clearly we're talking about a much smaller city at that time. However, the proportions, a third can you imagine a third of the population Dutch and French speaking immigrants? You know, I'm not going to get. I, I think it put, you know, it's an interesting statistic and one that puts things in perspective, I think, a little um, when we think about some of the issues that uh, people talk about. Um, plague struck Norwich in 1579, which um, in, 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 in adverse proportion um, affected the strangers. Um, it suggested. Um, extrapolating from some of the records which were made at the time, um, it suggested that the number of strangers who died of plague in 1579 could have been as much as two and a half thousand. Um, so, which, which was disproportionately <coughs> high. Um, Frank um, Mears in his book has said, um, posited the idea that perhaps they lived in particularly overcrowded areas, um, in, in, in poor conditions, or it may be perhaps that they were prey to the local strain of, of plague um, that, had, that had broken out and perhaps had not built up the, the necessary immunity. But the point is, um, by 1583, the city authorities had recorded the following strangers as living in Norwich. 1,128 males, 1,358 females, 815 children born abroad, and 1,376 born in England. So, in total, 4,677. Um, shows you that 
that many strangers had been in England for quite a long time. Clearly, the number of children that had been born here suggests that you know they'd been here a while, they'd settled, put down roots, and clearly numbers remained very high despite the impact um, which we've just mentioned of the plague. So clearly, there must have been a steady, um, constant topping up of the of the strangers' population. There's Blackfriars Church, Blackfriars Hall, as, it, as, it, as we know it. Um, the tower, which you can see, this is a print, incidentally, from our print collection. We've got boxes and boxes of prints out in our store. And if ever you want to look at them, please just ask. Fill in one of these slips, just like any of the other items we have. Um, and um, our, my colleagues or myself will go out and fetch them out for you. But this particular print um, is Blackfriars Hall. The tower collapsed, apparently, in 1712. Um, but this is basically the church that was given by the city authorities um, to the Dutch-speaking community. Um, clearly the, the, the prime reason, or one of the main reasons for them coming here was the fact that they were fleeing persecution because of their beliefs. Um, so clearly they had to so have somewhere to worship. And uh, Blackfriars Hall, which was, um, as it continued to be, was in the, in the gift of the city authorities, um, was, was the place that was given. Um, the French-speaking community, the Walloons, um, were allowed to worship in the chapel within the bishop's palace grounds, and then from the 1630s to 1832 in the old church of St. Mary the Less. Um, there are, um, in addition to that sheet which I mentioned, um, which, which gives you an idea of some of the records at the record office relating to the, to the strangers, there are, um, in those ring, coloured ring-bind folders in the centre on the left-hand side of the search room, um, some folders relating to non-conformist records and within that there are um, references to microfilms which contain records relating to the, to the Dutch and the French-speaking church as well. So if you're wanting to really sort of follow up this up, do, do have a look at those. Um, here we have um, again from the, from the Heritage Centre's print collection, um, John Ellison and his wife Maria. Um, the originals were painted as uh, the art, art aficionados will, will recognise by Rembrandt. Um, sadly, we don't have those um, in our collections. I suspect the, um, the library's finances would be a rather better off if we did. Um, unfortunately, they are in the, uh, the museum at, at Boston in, in the US, I believe. But we've got two prints, um, and they're great because they show us... Um, this is John Ellison. He was the pastor at, the, at Blackfriars at the Dutch Church. Um, approximately, thought to have been pastor at Norwich approximately 1604. So we actually have a face, a face of someone who preached at Blackfriars um, Hall at that time. Incidentally, um, it's thought that the, um, the portraits were painted in 1634, so he would have been a bit more, a bit more sprightly perhaps when he was, um, when he was uh, leading the congregation in, in, in 1604. Um, but fun, basically, the numbers of, of worshippers declined as strangers integrated into the community um, and joined Anglican um, congregations. Um, so, although it does seem that, that, that the strangers um, assimilated relatively quickly and, and, and were welcomed by the general population, um, there were one or two um, issues. The most well-known um, sort of uh, unrest which occurred against the strangers was in 1570. And again, have a look if you're interested. There are a number of books, sort of, um, I think... Uh, Frank again, Frank Mearsley's The Story of Norwich mentions it. There are other histories of Norwich which mention it. 
Um, certainly William Mowins in his book um, that I mentioned earlier um, goes into detail about the, um, the revolt which occurred, or the attempted revolt, which occurred in 1570. Um, the ringleader apparently was again a wonderfully named chap, John Throgmorton, um, but he had, had attempted to organise uh, a protest against the strangers and attempted to stir up, um, you know, those uh, ill feeling amongst those who felt that, you know, these immigrants were doing far too well in terms of their trade and the industry that they'd brought. Um, but basically, that was put down fairly swiftly, and in general, it seems as though, you know. The, their, their reception and their contribution um, went very positively. That's, uh, I haven't put the label on that because that is pretty clearly Elizabeth I. Um, it's well known that she came to the city in 1578 and on her visit um, there was a pageant, there were many pageants put on for her, but the first pageant that was put on for her in 1578 was apparently that by the artisan strangers in St Stephen Street. And this um, included the construction of a 40-foot-long platform and an artificial wall on which it was proclaimed that Her Majesty's Commonwealth was a place in which God was truly preached, justice was duly executed, the people were obedient, idleness was expelled, labour cherished and universal concord preserved. And on this platform, um, apparently small girls at either end spun and knitted worsted yarn and weavers displayed their different kinds of cloth. So the message um, was pretty clear. Um, the strangers um, were grateful for their opportunities they had been given, for the opportunities they'd been given. The city authorities were proud of their wisdom um, in inviting, um, inviting them in the first place, and both could show the queen that the city, and by extension the country, and of course by extension again herself, um, had benefited great, greatly from their contributions. Um, I'm going to sum up very shortly, but I will just mention, again, this is a wonderful, wonderful item, and it's out there, hopefully, as we speak, just being put out there now for you to have a look at. This is the title page of um, Belage Denis des Varichten Gelufs, etc., etc., Confession of the True Faith. So this is in Dutch, um, and it's by Anthony de Salem, and it was printed in 1568. And books prior to 1568 can be found in our, um, in our collections. The City Library, for those of you who aren't aware of it, is the, uh, the collection of books which was founded, um, the library was founded in, in 1608 by the city authorities um, in the main for visiting preachers to use as a reference, um, for reference um, to write their sermons and what have you. Um, it includes many, many books, some of which going back right to the dawn of printing. But most of those books prior to this period, well, all of them, those printed in England would have been printed in London. We do not know of any books printed in Norwich prior to this one, 1568, and we have it out there. The first book apparently printed in Norwich, um, and it was printed by a Dutchman, Anthony de Salem. He was one of the strangers. So this, for me, is kind of bringing together all those other things, um, or uh, symbolising, if you, if you like, all those other things which the Dutch contributed to the city because they did as, as, as well as the textiles they introduced um, the first books Antony de Salem um, was a spice merchant from, from Antwerp came to England in 1567 um, known to have printed eight books in the city um, all of which except one were in Dutch um, but aside from printing the Dutch contributed 
um, gardening, or you know, added much more to the to the expertise in terms of gardening in the city. Um, uh, clock making, um, jewelry making, um, vocabulary. It's well known. You know, Norwich's planes come from the Dutch. Comes from the Dutch plane. <laughs> Sounds exactly just the same. Um, and um, the Canaries, of course, Norwich City um, Football Club. Um, again, from our collections there. A photograph on the left-hand side there, a Norwich canary um, presented to Her Majesty the Queen by the Norwich All England Cage Bird Association, um, 1911. Um, and the Norwich City football team there, 1933-34. The canaries, as many people will know, um, had their nickname from the, uh, the legacy um, of, the, of the canaries, which the Dutch originally brought over. Apparently it wasn't for, for, a, for a couple of hundred years that this really, really caught on in Norwich. It seems to be the Victorian period that people went really mad for it and there are some wonderful um, wonderful newspaper articles which, which relate to, to various ways in which uh, um, Norwich's population were, were, was enamoured of the practice of breeding canaries. Um, but again, just you know, something else to illustrate um, just, just, just how um, wide-ranging the, the contribution of the strangers was. So, um, I think I've mentioned Moans' book. Um, I've mentioned the fact that we have many other records on, on microfilm, including wills and probate, of course, which I referred to earlier, earlier on. Um, yeah, please do go and have a look um, in a moment or two. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>